Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So, how are you doing today, Dad? I'm good. I'm really looking forward to doing this with my friend and teacher, Jack Cornfield. Yeah, very much the same. So today, as you said, we have the pleasure of welcoming one of the key teachers to introduce Buddhist mindfulness practice to the West, Jack Cornfield. After graduating from Dartmouth in 1967, he joined the Peace Corps and worked on tropical medicine teams in the Mekong River Valley. When in Southeast Asia, he studied under a number of Buddhist masters before returning to the United States, where he co-founded the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts with fellow meditation teachers Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein, and the Spirit Rock Center in Woodacre, California. His books have been translated into 20 languages and sold more than a million copies. They include A Wise Heart, A Guide to the Universal Teachings of Buddhist Psychology, A Path with Heart, and his most recent book, No Time Like the Present, Fighting Freedom, Love, and Joy, Right Where You Are. Jack also holds a PhD in clinical psychology and is a father, husband, and activist. So Jack, thank you so much for doing this. How are you doing today? happy to be here and happy to see you both. Really a pleasure. I'm good today. Great. Thanks again for being here. To start by framing the conversation a little bit for our listeners, what was it like for you to go to Southeast Asia as a young man in the 1970s and be a monk there? It was a fantastic adventure. You know how young men are, generally speaking. They're interested in adventure and difficulty, like anything dangerous to do around here, cool. You know, show me how to do it. You want to prove yourself. You want to learn new things. And it was during the time of the Vietnam War. Um, It was possible I could have been drafted. Uh, When I graduated, I'd studied Chinese and Asian studies and Buddhism in college. And I thought, well, is there something I could do better than that? Uh, I didn't want to go kill people. So I said, how about if I go in the Peace Corps and ask them to send me to a Buddhist country? So I ended up uh, in the remote part of the border of Thailand with Laos and then Cambodia um, and working on these tropical medicine teams for a couple of years, learning the languages and looking for a teacher. Um, I knew I needed it because my family of origin was a very painful situation. My father, who was a kind of brilliant scientist, but also quite disturbed in other ways, paranoid and violent, was uh, violent to us as children and abusive and much more so to my to my mom. And nothing in a good Ivy League education teaches you how to deal with your fear, with your emotions, with setting intentions. How do you have a wise relationship? What do you do with anger? Uh, what about forgiveness? How do you, um, how do you tra- tame or train your own mind? Um, and I knew I needed that. And I started reading things in Buddhist psychology and so forth. And I thought, are there any great masters out there? Let me go and see. And then getting to be out in the more remote parts of Thailand on the border of Laos at that time, most of the villages didn't have electricity. So it was a really ancient way of life where the cloth was woven on looms under the houses next to the pens for the pigs and the water buffalo. Uh, All the food pretty much was grown in the community and shared the vegetables and rice. Yes, there were radios that people had, uh, but mostly there was a rhythm of life with the monastery and uh, Buddhist 
practices and chanting as a part of it and education and rituals and ceremonies that had been there for thousands of years. And it was a beautiful thing to be able to be in that culture, to speak the language. And at first on the medical teams and then later as a Buddhist monk, to actually have a place within that culture where I could learn the uh, the really deep understandings and teachings that had been carried on for thousands of years. You know, Jack, I've, I've known you for quite a while and vice versa. And um, reflecting here on what you've said about your own childhood and your own upbringing and the instability in it and the anger and the harms that were easily done there, I'm just imagining in part that for you as a young man, there was something that particularly touched you or was useful for you in the stability or the orderliness, the predictability, the rhythms even uh, of that time, as well as the kindness that seemed, that's so inherent in that culture. All of those elements. Also, I was fortunate. I had three brothers, a twin, a brother just a year younger, and then a yet another younger brother. And we looked out for each other. We still love each other a lot and are close. And there's some way in which having that community of brothers set me up for whether it was in college or the monastery or the years of teaching since which have been really a collegial process and one of the things that's characterized the teachers in our mindfulness community insight meditation spirit rock and so forth is that we team teach and we work together right we support one another i've learned a lot from my colleagues and also, quite honestly, keeps us from getting into much trouble. Because if you're the kind of solo guru, master, whatever, and believe me, I'm in the industry, and I've seen gurus and lamas and swamis and mamas, and if you're at the top, you start to believe your press releases, and you don't have anybody to talk to about it. So there's a certain way in which the difficulties that I face, that's one dimension of them, actually led me to find a way to live that was wiser and more connected to others in a healthy fashion. Yeah. Uh, you practiced really deeply in Asia. Um, you took robes. You became a monk for a while. Right. Can you speak a little bit on how much time you did that, maybe in different settings, so people can get yeah, a more concrete a, sense of that? I was a monk initially for several years. I was there originally for five years, and then I went back and became a monk again Yeah, several other times in India and Burma. Um, because in the Theravada tradition, you can ordain more than once, and then you can become a lay person, you can go back. Uh, the longest retreat that I did was in a monastery with a Saido in Mahasi Saido's lineage, a Burmese monastery. And that was a silent retreat for about 500 days. So it was a year plus, and it was really powerful. Uh, the practices that we did, we each had our own little kind of hut in the forest, was to sit in meditation for an hour and then walk for an hour, as much as you could, basically 16 or 18 hours a day, then get a little bit of sleep and then do it again. Part of the training, the initial part, was just to be able to bear witness to all the things that would come up there. I would be alone and my longings and love and fear and fantasies and sexual desires and aggression and hopes and beautiful things, all that pour out of you, and how to begin to trust mindfulness or mindful loving awareness 
that can hold all of that, which is one of the arts that meditation teaches everybody. And in neuroscience, they talk about it expanding the window of tolerance that you can bear the whole, what Zorba calls the whole catastrophe of being a human being. But then as things got quieter, my mind became silent and vast and luminous. It became filled with light, which is a common mystical experience um, reported in all kinds of traditions. And it's not like, oh, you know, I'm supposed to feel lighter. There is that. You can feel like your body's floating in the air, things like that. But consciousness itself, when it gets very quiet and focused and the mind becomes, I don't know how to describe it, concentrated and pure in a way. And the pure means simply it's not distracted by judgments and longings and fears and so forth. It's just present. That consciousness starts to fill the mind and body with light. And your body can dissolve as mind and dissolve into light, or you see light in different forms. So there were all those kind of special states that came. More deeply, what became evident as I trained in this careful attention, a moment-to-moment attention to the living experience of my senses was that wherever I looked, the deeper I looked, the more it started to dissolve. And so that sounds or sensations or experiences became pixelated, like on a screen with those tiny little dots. Vision became not so solid, but it was like the colored pixels. Sound was more like sound vibrations. And the more closely I was able to observe getting both quiet and deeply focused, the more it became apparent that the whole experience of life is this set of vibrations received by our senses and then constructed into something solid when in fact it's an ever-changing energy field. And seeing that gave the deep impetus to a kind of letting go and release of desires, of fears, of the whole identity of self into a vastness and stillness, which was the kind of inner freedom that it pointed to. So it was both an emotional training and a healing in some way, and then a much deeper dive or opening to the substance of reality. Now, I have to say that I had a bit of an assist In that prior to going to Asia, I also spent the summer of love in San Francisco, going to the Fillmore and, you know, drinking from the little wagon that had the punch bowl full of LSD in it and various other adventures (laughs) like that, uh, where the same kinds of experience of discovering that our mind actually creates reality out of raw sense experience, the thoughts and ideas and so forth. Um, the dissolution of body, the ego death, if you will, or the death of the sense of self, which at first may seem frightening, but actually in the end leads to a sense of timelessness and trust and vastness beyond our normal identity. Those things had come in some ways through psychedelic experiences and, you know, reading from the old great mystics and Zen masters and so forth as I did that. So there was, I have to say, the pump was primed a little bit. But nevertheless, uh, that was part of the training. 
So that's some of the story. Well, I'm so glad you talked about all that. Um, one of my favorite books of yours actually is not as well known as I think it ought to be, Living Buddhist Masters, one of the early titles. These um, teachings from people who are just profoundly realized and, and this possibility that you described and you experienced, including uh, through the trainings you did, is something that I think inherently calls people and should be more known uh, widely than it is. And I wanted to ask you in particular, it's kind of a question that people have, when you really emptied out into everything, was love there? How would you talk about that part? My first response is to say that emptiness and love can't be separated. That as I became quieter and simpler and more vast and less attached to the both the outer circumstances being a certain way, but even more so less attached to my own feelings and thoughts and views and all of those things, I simply became more present and more alive. And in that presence, perhaps you could call that love. I could see or listen or hear in ways attend to another person or for that matter, you know, to the wild game in the forest that was around us, you know, or the occasional wild animals, the deer and, and so forth. There was some way in which the sense of separation also started to dissolve. And with that, with that presence came a deep sense of being part of everything. So you could call that love. Now I've also learned over lots of years now, 45 years as a teacher, that for most people, it helps to deliberately cultivate the practices and qualities of loving kindness and compassion, and also self-compassion. Mm -hmm. Because even though as we empty and get more present, that quality of love comes naturally, it really helps to start with it in the beginning. Um, and it strengthens it somehow. There's some way in which uh, it allows that heart of compassion and that sense of connection to grow fuller, uh, richer, sweeter by inviting it in the heart to fill that space of presence or emptiness that grows so they they are the same they go together but they're also different valences different qualities of consciousness that can be tuned or invited and enhanced does that fit with your understanding of how uh, how we work when you look at it as the psychologist that you are certainly the part about how Practices of warm-heartedness um, really serve steadying the mind and really serve the letting go that's necessary to, to really open out. Um, the part that is a growing edge for me and, and one that um, others have certainly spoken of is that as one kind of opens out into everything, uh, what does one find there? And what is the nature of what one finds there? Uh, in the emptiness, is there a fullness, including a 
uh, a kind of transpersonal lovingness or loving presence, let's say, that's there. So that was part of what I was asking there. Well, you're also asking a question. I'll use a word that I don't use very much when I teach, but let's go there. You're talking about enlightenment and mm-hmm. the nature of consciousness itself. So, you know, let's go there for a second. Yep. And here's a way to understand it. Consciousness, which is what we are and who we are. We are consciousness. Consciousness gets born in your body. You're not made of kale and Big Macs. It's just not your identity, <laughs> you know, and you're not your emotions, although they need to be respected because you have a human incarnation and you're not your thoughts. God help you but you can use them, but that's not your identity. Who you are is the spirit or consciousness that was born into your body and that will also leave it in this mysterious way when you die. Those of us who've had the privilege of sitting with people at the end of their life, as I have, are awed every time by that moment when someone is there as a human being and then silent like a falling star that spirit leaves the body, body's still warm. Eyes can still receive light. Neurons probably still firing, but the consciousness isn't there to receive it. Um, Who we are is awareness itself in the end. So that's the first thing. As you release, whether it's through meditation or other deep practices or sometimes in other kind of remarkable ways. Sometimes women reported in childbirth or, you know, through an accident where you have an out-of-the-body experience and then all kinds of other things happen. All kinds of ways you discover that you're not your normal identity. You're not the identity of your role and your ideas of yourself and your place in society. And you shift back instead to become what my teacher called the one who knows, the awareness itself, the the knowing, then you discover that consciousness itself, like a crystal, has many different dimensions or facets. So in its purest state, its vastness and silence and awareness that contains all things, and that containing all things, you also could call love because it connects with everything, but it's not an emotional love. When light shines through a crystal, white light or pure light, it then gets divided by wavelength and by the the facets of the crystal into a rainbow of colors that are representative of different wavelengths from you know ultraviolet at one end all the way to infrared at the other and all this so forth the same is literally true consciousness that the the luminous nature of consciousness at times can be experienced as silence then you turn the crystal a little and it can be experienced as love and the deep, full richness of love, that everything is love. You can turn the crystal or see through another dimension of consciousness, and everything is seen through the uh, quality of perfection, that with all the suffering in the world and all the things in the universe, there's still a perfection that's felt in it. 
then you can turn the crystal a little further. It's all empty. That is nothing is substantial. It's all like a dream. Your whole life, your childhood, the Egyptian empire, the dinosaurs, everything arises and passes out of nothing. And this will too. But it's not just emptiness. You turn it again and it's fullness that that emptiness actually manifests as all the things of the universe. And you can fear the, feel the fullness. You can turn it again um, and there's another dimension of it, which is uh, a kind of joy or bliss uh, that's just inherent in creation itself. Um, and each of these facets of consciousness, there's another facet that feels like simple purity, and another is just vast silence. Each of these can be experienced they can be enhanced in different ways by directing yourself to try to tune into that channel. And the only problem with it is that various teachers and traditions will come to some inner sense of freedom and feel, oh, it's vast silence, or, oh, it's all love, or, no, it's compassion, oh, it's purity, oh, it's joy, oh, it's whatever happens to be, um, and they make an entire path and tradition out of that one ex one dimension of consciousness and say it's the real thing, when in fact it is the real thing, but so are these other facets. Mm -hmm. um, and so it gets kind of confusing who's got the real thing. And it's a little bit like the elephant. Somebody has the, 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 the leg and the tail and the trunk. And in this case, you know, we can parse out the dimensions of consciousness but enlightenment or liberation is first knowing that this is who we really are and a release of our ordinary identity to realize that and live in this place while this is the, the wild part because everybody listening, you have this weird human incarnation. And so you have to, as my dear friend Ramna says, you have to remember your true nature and your social security number. Right. And you have to actually find a way to inhabit your incarnation, this amazing human life you've been given, while staying transparent to the divine, the true nature, the consciousness, whatever language you want to use. And that that's actually what liberation means. It means liberation wherever we are, that the heart can be free, but also that within form is emptiness and love, and within emptiness and love also can be held all the forms of the world. Some little thing like that. Just a little like that. Yeah. So you've spoken really profoundly, and clearly you have profound realization yourself, and you have profound experiences, and um, you, you've walked the talk for the, what, 30 plus years since you left Asia, you know, originally forty-five. Came, yeah, and came back to the to the states. For people listening who will actually practice five minutes or so a day, yeah, which is infinitely the more than most people because five something is more than zero. Yep, something is infinitely more than nothing. Uh, what are little down-to-earth suggestions you might offer for people at the level of a minute here, four minutes there, that could integrate and ground and include? some of the profundity you've been speaking about here? So a couple of things. First, a little experiment for listeners. Go into your bathroom or your bedroom 
and look at yourself in the mirror. And if you want, even, you know, after a shower or something, look at your body in the mirror. When you do, you'll notice you have aged. It doesn't look the same as it was five or 10 or 20, or in my case, 50 years ago. It droops in some places. It loses its fur in some places and gets more fur in others. You know, it wrinkles its egg. It does stuff like that. But the common human experience is that while the body is older, we don't necessarily feel older. You know that experience. And that's because it's only the body that is aged. But in that moment that you're looking in the mirror and saying, hmm, I wonder how this body is doing. It's sort of like you're observing your incarnation. Oh, it's getting older. It's lost, you know, muscle here or hair there or drooping here or whatever it's doing. In that moment, you become the witness to your life. You shift your identity from being inside your body or inside that identity in some way. And you become the... Hopefully the loving, I mean, there's a lot of judgment people have about their body, but we'll leave that aside for the moment because it's not helpful. Um, Plus, which your body is going to get old and droop no matter what judgment you have about it. Um, You become the loving awareness that says, oh, wow, wonder how this incarnation is going, how this body is doing, how this mind is doing. That little exercise is an invitation for your meditation to remind you of how you can step out of the drama of your life and become the witness, the mindful, loving awareness that says, oh, how is today? Well, I'm anxious. I have to get through all these things. Somebody said that. I'm a little upset about them. My God, I have this one thing I really want to do. There's desire and longing. Um, I have all these creative thoughts but I'm also angry at this person or whatever. You know, all the usual stuff that happens in our mind. And you sit and you quiet yourself with some breaths. And then you notice the state of your heart and your mind without judgment, with kindness, because you're just a human being and we have everything in there. And by becoming the mindful, loving awareness, the witness of it, you step out of the drama somewhat. And it gives a sense of stillness, of greater space. It actually invites a quality of love to grow, that loving awareness. I can hold all this. You might call it compassion. I can hold all of my life and realize, yeah, I'm getting along, sometimes better than others. Like the great Zen poet Ryokan, who is the most beloved and famous poet in Japan. And he wrote of himself, Last year, a foolish monk. This year, no change. And there's some way in which the humor and the simplicity of the statement, and here he was, a great Zen master, gives an inkling of the freedom, the well-being that comes when we say, ah, how are we doing in this incarnation? And then you start to see the places you really get caught. I'm really upset about this. I really need that. I really, somebody did this and so forth. And you realize that that getting caught creates a lot of suffering. And it's not so necessary. It doesn't mean you can't stand up for yourself or respond. 
Mindfulness has two dimensions. The first is mindful presence in which you become that loving witness of your life, which you can do in five minutes. Okay, how's it going? And then the second part of mindfulness is loving, mindful response. So the word for mindfulness in Sanskrit, Pali, is sati samajanya. And sati means mindful presence. And samajanya speaks to mindful response, just like breathing in and breathing out. It's not a passive venture. It means we quiet the mind and tend the heart and shift from being caught in things to being the compassionate or loving space of awareness. And then we discover from that space of compassionate awareness how to respond. We go to work, we talk to people, we do what we have to do, but we act from a much freer place. I really appreciate what you're saying there, and part of it that really speaks to me personally is the and nature of it, how it's not one thing or the other, but it's all of these things together. I think that's a beautiful insight about the nature of reality. Also, what I would like to draw a little bit of attention to here is the way in which what you're describing sounds, at least to me, and please let me know what you think, like a kind of metacognitive approach where you're really paying a lot of attention to the action of your attention and to the focus of your mind. And what it really sounds like me that you're describing are these very whole and open states of attention and awareness. And of course, as we move through the world, sometimes we are sucked into, you know, not so much that. We're sucked into the little things that go wrong, the things that rub us the wrong way, whatever it might be. And I'm wondering for you, as somebody who is deeply practiced inside of this material, I got to imagine that still every once in a while you get stuck kind of in those little thought patterns or periods of rumination or whatever it might be. And so I'm wondering, when you find yourself there, what do you do to disengage from that? Well, first of all, I, I would use a different language than being sucked in, mm, although okay. that may be people's experience, like a like a whirlpool, Yeah, because there are certain very sticky thought patterns mm -hmm. and certain emotional patterns from our trauma, from our fears, from our hopes, and all of those sort of things. So they are sticky in some way. But the problem with that language for me is that it has a judgment in it. And in fact, the game is loving awareness. So instead of saying, okay, I got trapped, I got sucked into the whirlpool, you say, oh, isn't this interesting? Mm. You know, you become more like the pet owner and you're <laughs> training your puppy, you know, or you're in some way your personality is like your pet. Okay, there it is. And it does what it does. And it gets upset about some things and triggered by this and that. You say, that's fine. And in the moment that you recognize it, that moment, I wouldn't even call it metacognition because it gets a little complex then in people's minds. I would simply say you step out of believing, being identified with your thoughts or your feelings, and you become that loving awareness. That's all. In a moment, and it can happen in any moment, you say, oh, I was caught in that, you know. And if you say, oh, I hate that, uh, you know, I got caught in that judgment, and I got caught in that desire, and I got, I should not have any desires, and I shouldn't be so judging. But what's that? It's a desire and it's judgment. So you never get out of it that way. Instead, you bow to it and you say, oh, judging mind, thank you. Thank you for trying to protect me. 
which it is. It's a kind of protection. And you know whose voice got recorded in there a long time ago. We won't talk about them, but anyway, that's in there. Thank you for trying to protect me. Or, you know, the wanting mind. We all have wanting mind. We're supposed to. It's wired into us. But it's possible to have healthy desires or unhealthy desires. And we can't work with them in a way that really treasures our life, our heart, our relationships, unless we have the space to step back a little and notice with loving awareness, this is what desire feels like. You don't get rid of it. As the poet says, it's like hiding the chocolate chip cookies because you're on a diet. Meanwhile, you're the only person in the galaxy who knows where those cookies are hidden. Mm -hmm. You can't get rid of it. But you can say, oh, this is the wanting mind. And then in it, you can say, is there something healthy to follow? Sometimes there is. Or is there something unhealthy or destructive in this? The very fact of simply, without judgment and kindness, being able to observe or to witness your experience gives you a kind of liberation. And it only takes a moment. Those moments you wake up, even if it's twice in five minutes and the other four minutes and 30 seconds you know, you're off thinking, those are gold. Mm -hmm. They're so valuable because they're the shift from who you think yourself to be to the real presence or being. Now, another thing to say is, you know, I talk about the nature of consciousness because, you know, we're doing this podcast and thought it would be fun and enlightenment <laughs> and all that stuff. But the people who are listening, they already know when you walk in the high mountains, when you listen to an extraordinary piece of music, sometimes making love, sometimes uh, sitting at the death of someone at that mysterious moment, or being for, there for the birth of a child or giving birth, or taking some sacred medicine of some kind. There's, we've all had moments more than transcendence moments where we step out of the ordinary identity of our life and sense a vastness, a sense of connection, love, a freedom. It's not something that we're a stranger to. So that the invitation, even in these little moments, it's not that you're going to sit for five minutes in meditation and have that vastness that you had while walking in the Himalayas or the high Alps or Rockies or something exactly, but it is there in a way. And it's always there because it's who you are. And so it's not like you're creating it, you're remembering. You know, there's a saying in India, when a baby is born, it sings, do not let me forget who I really am. And then a little while later, its song changes. And it sings, oh dear, I'm forgetting already. Which is then the invitation for that baby to be taken to the temple or the monastery and reminded here's a place that will help you keep that purity, that original goodness uh, alive for you. When you practice yourself in a formal way these days, when you meditate yourself, um, I'm reminded of a thought I have, which is to meditate upon what draws my heart. That, that for me would be a way of describing a lot of what I do. Uh, and um, what do you do, if you don't mind saying, in your own practice? And I actually want to frame well, I this. I don't understand first what you said. I'll answer mine. Uh -huh. 
can you describe what does it mean what draws your heart you know suppose yeah. you're sitting there and you've been watching game of thrones all week. yeah yeah is, is that what draws your heart to kind of do reruns what does it mean to what draws yeah your heart? yeah i think you know you know the saying that the mind takes its shape from what it rests upon repeatedly so what is it as a meditation object or a state of being uh, in a formal way that a person wants to rest their mind upon and gradually take the shape of, which could well be that felt sense of the true nature already that you've been speaking about. So I, I want to frame this actually from someone you know well, Sylvia Borstein. Many years ago, I was uh, talking with Sylvia about potentially doing some kind of fancy interfaith conference. And she said essentially that she'd been to a number of those and she was just bored out of her mind with all the talks. And what she wanted to know was when people do practice, whatever they consider to be practice, including its, its, its formal aspects in household or life, what do you actually do? What do you actually do in your practice and why? And how's it going for you? What, what are the results? She has also asked me repeatedly, toward what end? Like what makes you do it? What do yeah. you what do you try to get out the of it? The why exactly yeah. toward what end? So I wondered if you could speak to that. So my current meditation practice is relatively simple. I don't really have goals. Um, I certainly am not looking for new teachings or teachers. I don't go very much. I mean, I read books and occasionally I see new teachers, mostly at conferences and other things like that, because. Mm -hmm. It's my industry, you know. But I've had enough teachings that I could spend a lot of lifetimes doing. I don't need more teachings. I, you know, I need to embody them in some way. I'm also not very interested in states anymore, even though I now know how to meditate and with a little bit of time to get into states of very deep silence or vastness or dissolve into light or things like that. Um okay, that's nice, then, you know, it's time to do the dishes, mm -hmm. you know, and drive my grandson somewhere, things like that. And I don't favor one over the other. Experiences are just experiences that come. And I'm much more interested in just the presence of loving awareness. So when I sit, I do two or three things. I'll sit with that presence of loving awareness, just letting things be as they are. I will sometimes concentrate or focus on my breath. It's like an old dear friend. Mm. And I do it not in order to become a good breather or to become deeply concentrated, although that can come, but because there's something in my experience that's cleansing or collecting or even purifying about it. And by what what I mean by that is that if I pay attention to something as simple as my breath repeatedly, which I've done over many years, but do it again, the interrupting thoughts and emotions and things, I notice them, I can acknowledge them, receive them with loving awareness and let them go. And little by little, they start to quiet down or drop away. And the breath becomes an entree, if you will, to a deeper, quieter presence, not to get someplace else. I also do compassion and loving kindness practice. I love doing it. I do it when I wander around. I do it in my seated, you know, formal meditation sometimes, um, just to keep heart and mind open and connected. Um, that's about it. Pretty simple. 
Well, thank you. And kind of segueing from that, as Forrest knows, uh, one of the things you're doing a lot these days, including with Tara Brock, is training mindfulness teachers yes. who are going to use mindfulness in mainly very secular uh, settings uh, extracted from, uh, let's say, the Buddhist lineage. And I wondered how you, uh, if you could say a little bit about those training programs and how you bring together you know, the kind of profundity, again, that you've spoken to here with the practicality of someone who's going to be doing a 10-minute mindfulness training once a week for the people in her corporation, say. So we have this mindfulness teacher training program through Sounds True, Tara mm -hmm. Brock and I, and we've got a couple of thousand people that have gone through it or are going through it online to work in schools or clinics or business or in other ways. And they're people who've had at least a few years of practice and some retreat experience enough to have their own sense of why it's valuable, how it's changed their life and want to be, want to pass it on. Some people say, well, they're not like the great teachers you might encounter in the monasteries you trained. I love doing these trainings and mm. I just had, I just did a retreat where we had a number of these people come. They were part of a larger retreat. And when I heard from them what they were learning, what they were doing, it was it was beautiful. So I heard from all these people who were in the training programs things that I wouldn't have imagined coming out so quickly. Um, it's like they have a, a a tool set or a kind of treasure that they can bring to people who may or may not know even what they're missing and go, oh, this is so helpful to us. Um, and I've come to really trust the good heart and the motivation of people who want to pass on what they're learning, even if they're relatively new to it. They're not like 25-year meditators who've done long, long retreats and things like that, but they've done some years of practice, a few, and they've really learned something. Um, it's exciting and really heartening to see. You're kind of speaking to the critique, you know, the objection that sometimes arises against the secular mindfulness movement, if we could call it that. That it's getting watered down, yeah, or it's, it's losing. Yeah, or it's yeah. being misused, and, or it's yeah. meaningless outside of context, and you're speaking to how it, it can be used well. It can, not only can it be used well, but that whole critique is kind of a somebody's vaguely, I mean, it's a caring, but a vaguely idealistic fantasy. Because I hate to say this, but if you were to go back to Buddhist Asia, to Thailand or Burma or Tibet or, mm -hmm. you know, uh, other parts of Southeast Asia or Taiwan or something, you would find that people had learned to water down the Dharma in a thousand creative ways and they've been doing it for a really long time. And, you know, more often than not, someone will go into the temple leave some money, make an offering, light some incense and do a prayer. That's their practice in order to have better business that morning or have their kid get into the right school. Yeah. It's like a transaction. Oh, Buddha, will you help my child or whatever? Um, you know, or people who are selling things or, and so forth. We, you know, we're American. We know how to misuse pretty much anything, uh -huh. but we're not the originators <laughs> of that. We're part of being human. And so that whole notion it is some some kind of fantasy. The reality is that to whatever extent 
mindfulness, loving awareness, trainings in compassion become known and spread throughout a society in a secular way is really terrific because all the modern neuroscience, there's now been six or 7,000 papers and studies in the last decade or two that show the benefit of mindfulness training, the benefit of compassion practice, so that it can be incorporated in education and social or emotional learning and in schools and in clinics and healthcare and all these things. It's great. And you don't have to become a Buddhist. Spare your friends and family. What you want is to become a Buddha, you know, and you can be a kind of secret Buddha wherever you work. It's totally cool. You know, so rather than seeing it as a drawback, I actually see the spread of mindfulness in the way that it is starting to wend its way into the fabric of education or healthcare or or business or or athletics, all these other things, um, is really good for the soul of our society. That's great. When I think of you and one of the key qualities you brought into the movement of Buddhism into the West, and in historical ways, um, is passion. And, uh, you know, some people's practice tends to be pretty analytical, and they teach a lot about analysis. And and the thing that has struck me a lot about you is the heart in it, the passion in it. And um, I know a lot of people generally, and certainly people listening to this podcast, have, have a heavy heart these days about the state of the world, global climate change, species extinction, the catastrophes that are happening and that are to come. And I know you've been really engaged in this area. You've been one of the major figures in, in, for example, supporting greater diversity in Buddhist practice. And I wondered if you had any counsel uh, for people whose hearts are really heavy about the state of the world um, and anything in particular that you're yourself really engaged with these days about that. Well, I'll start more generally and then get more specific. We can all see that no amount of technological development alone, nanotechnology, biotechnology, computer, internet technology, artificial intelligence, space technology, is going to stop continuing warfare continuing racism, continuing climate disruption, uh, continuing tribalism, that those have roots in the human heart. And so as a species, we have these remarkable outer developments where your smartphone has the great library of Alexandria next to three and a half million cat videos or whatever, (laughs) but it has everything. But your heart hasn't caught up necessarily. As one of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said, we're a nation of nuclear giants and ethical infants. And so what's required of us as human beings now is to develop our hearts, our consciousness, our sense of interconnection, compassion, uh, you know, inner freedom, all of those qualities we've been talking about to match our outer development. And without it, we just continue to create suffering. And the Buddhist teachings about suffering is very clear. Suffering arises out of greed, hatred, and ignorance. We see a lot of that in the world, a lot of greed, a lot of hatred, and a lot of ignorance. It's not the end of the story. There's also a path to the end of that, to freedom. And that path includes 
awareness, compassion, the kind of trainings we've been talking about, which are possible for every human being. All that being said, what I find in teaching these days is pretty much wherever I go, a collective anxiety mm-hmm. about climate change, about the increasing divisiveness in the culture, about uh, the refugees, about a whole variety of human-caused suffering that's both here and that has a kind of tragic arc if we follow it uh, and don't pay attention or alter it in some way. That being said, it's not the end of the story. What our culture has done, for example, with climate change, which is an enormous and compelling problem, is in some cases to go into denial. It's not true. In others, to go into despair. It's too late. What we can do, we can only do little things. Denial, despair, all kinds of defenses or ignoring it just because it overwhelms us and it brings us a sense of grief and sadness. However, we human beings also have an enormous capacity for creativity and survival and new responses. And so what's needed at this time is to learn to quiet the mind, to tend the heart and realize that your heart is big enough Your heart of compassion is big enough to hold the sufferings of the world and the fears and the anxiety and not get lost in it, to become the witness of it and say, we're living through tough times. We have lived through tough times before, I assure you that. I mean, I can think of talking to my mother who died about eight or 10 years ago, but she would say, oh, you know, I was born after the just after the First World War. I heard all those stories, and then there was the Great Depression, and then there was the Second World War, and then there was this and that. She said, so this isn't like a new story for me, and we got through it. So then the question is, all right, how do we get through it? And I don't have, of course, the entire recipe, but what they require is something equally important which is that we begin to trust that we can turn toward the difficulty, that our hearts and minds can hold this, what seemed despairing or difficult, and instead, by looking it straight straight in the eye, that we can become empowered and say, all right, this is not right for us, for our grandchildren, for the species, and we can do something. And this is the, the kind of response, again, which says that the contemplative life, people think of it as passive and navel-gazing. And disengaged. And disengaged is actually the opposite. That it's not until you quiet the mind and learn how to tend the heart and become brave enough to sit in the middle of the 10,000 joys and sorrows that make up your human incarnation and take your seat in the middle of all of that with love, that you can then get up and turn toward the difficulties of the world and realize that you have the capacity not only to face them, whether it's climate change or racism or you know the various other ills of humanity caused by hatred and greed and so forth. You know those forces in yourself. You know also that there's an alternative, which is awareness, compassion, love, that you trust that, and then you can act in really skillful ways. 
Jack, to close here, and again, really thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I think you've given a fantastic reflection here, both on the nature of the world as it is right now, and hopefully really looking forward to maybe turn the coin the other way as we bring the podcast to a close here and to look back. If you had the opportunity to go back in time and speak to yourself, maybe as a As a 20-year-old going into Southeast Asia for the first time or whatever it might be, what would you want to say to that person? Huh. Well, first I'd want to tell them, you're going to have a really cool life. (laughs) You know, relax. It's going to be really good. It will work out in some way. Uh, So there's that. I also, even though I knew that I had, that I was relatively smart, that I could think about and figure things out, I had some creative mind, I also didn't feel very confident, especially in relationships, because my family of origin was so... And I would have liked to like put my arm around the shoulder and say, hey, dude, it's okay. You need to have a little more confidence. You'll do better with girls. <laughs> You'll do better with people around you. So I would have said that, that there's something about not only caring for oneself, but feeling that you, each person, actually has something to offer the world and standing up with a sense of your own dignity or value. And it's kind of a beautiful thing to see when you go to a culture or a place um, where people carry that in some fashion or other. And it doesn't even matter. I've been in refugee camps, you know, and I've seen people who've lost everything. Some of them still carry a sense of dignity and presence and self-confidence that makes wherever they go, you know, workable in a completely different way. It brings some uh, beautiful qualities and makes new opportunities. So I would want to kind of encourage that in myself. Not much else. Oh, yeah, this is great. And, you know, your dad, especially, I mean, I've known you, but your dad is really a dear and old friend and a colleague, and I so much appreciate and respect the way your work has flowered, Rick, oh, and thank all these you. fashions in the world through your writing and teaching. And uh, yeah, we're all in it together. And I'm happy that we are. We have each other. So thank you. So today we had the pleasure of speaking with Jack Cornfield. We began the podcast by talking about Jack's personal experience as a young adult, going to Southeast Asia and studying there as a monk. He describes some really intense and deep experiences and the impact that they had on his personal practice, including a time where he spent something like 500 days in a completely silent retreat. From there, Rick and Jack discussed several topics related to the nature of mindfulness, insight itself, and perhaps even enlightenment altogether. During that conversation, Jack gave this really wonderful reflection, I thought, about looking at reality as this multifaceted crystal, where it is not just emptiness or wholeness or silence or allness or fullness or joy or whatever else, but it is, in fact, all of those things together. And the more that we can step into a realization of reality as all of those things together as we inhabit this fleshy body, the more true, in many ways, our perception becomes. And he also reflected for a moment really briefly, but in a way that 
stuck out to me about the ways in which different teachers from different traditions can sometimes get a little hijacked by any one of those facets of reality and make it the whole of their personal practice. From there, Jack talked about what he does inside of his own practice, and Rick and Jack shared some reflections on secular mindfulness versus non-secular mindfulness. And he closed with a real emphasis on the importance of approaching our lives and approaching possibility with a sense of hope rather than defeat. As Jack mentioned during the podcast, he has a teacher training program offered through Sounds True with Tara Brock. If you're interested in learning more about that, I'll include a link to it in the description of today's episode. Also, I'd like to remind you about Rick Hansen's Foundations of Wellbeing online program. It is a fantastic program. It's really one of the best accumulations of knowledge and material on a personal development subject that I'm aware of, and it's still accepting registrations. So if you're interested in learning more about the Foundations of Wellbeing online program, I'll also include a link to that in the description of today's podcast. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice, and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out. So until next time, thanks for listening.